Hi everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Project Stay Alive podcast. Today, you're going to meet my good friend, Brianna, who you heard me talk about in our intro podcast episode, where I introduced to you Project Stay Alive. Brianna's going to talk to us all about the work that she's done in the crisis mental health field. She works at, or previously worked at, a local crisis line here in Portland, Oregon, and I am so excited that she's going to talk to you about the work that she's done and the work that she's going to continue to do as she embarks on her social work career. Everyone, get ready and meet Brianna. Brianna, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I'll edit that out. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. This is so cool for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be a part of this. I Like I still remember when you told me about it the first time, um, I knew immediately that it was something that I wanted to be a part of. Yeah. Gosh, that seems like so long ago now. That was in January. Yeah. It's like the end of June. So, so yeah, it's been a long time in the making, but I'm really excited that we're kind of at a place where we can sit down and like really look at this, um, this stuff with people. We've got like a few interviews lined up and I'm like so excited to yeah. meet people <laughs> and talk to them. Okay. Uh, let's do some warm up questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Tell the podcast who you are, what you do and why you care about mental health. Yeah, so obviously I'm Brianna, um, and I hate talking about myself, so this will obviously be really easy for me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm in my early 20s, live in the Pacific Northwest. I work in mental health, the mental health field, and I, um, I don't know, I have a dog. (laughs) That's that's on the website for everyone. He's real cute. He is cute. Um, Yeah. I work currently at a mental health agency in a rural county. I do more administrative training work there, um, but I'm looking to get back into crisis work. I'm looking to pursue education, um, currently working to get into an online program, so that's incredibly exciting. And I guess why I care about mental health is because I've been in both spots. I've been both somebody who's experienced mental unwellness and been somebody who's witnessed the people I love go through that. As a witness, I saw my family experience hallucinations um, and pretty significant and persistent mental illness. Um, I also saw family members go through substance use and mental health co-occurring Uh, disorders and you know I think witnessing that type of pain in people that you care about fundamentally makes you want to understand it better you want to understand what you're seeing what you're experiencing and then as I grew into the person that I am the adult that I am I experienced my own trauma experienced my own unwellness experienced my own challenges And I got this intimate knowledge of how dark a person's mind could be. Yeah. And how damaging it could be. So that's that's really what drew me to caring about what what is going on in our own heads sometimes and how to impact that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean it's not funny, but it's funny how 
many of us who go into helping fields go into it because we've either experienced it or we've been impacted by the experience most often with our parents or siblings but sometimes our extended family units yeah okay well there's a lot to unpack yeah where should we start let's start with talking about your degree. So you watched your family struggle and you struggled and you got your bachelor's degree in, I think, psychology and sociology. Am I right? Yes, that is right. Um, Yeah, I went to uh, a university in Oregon and pursued a dual degree. So I got a bachelor's in psych and sociology. Um, And I think the reason that I did that was both of those programs gave me such an understanding of how things operated on a macro level and then how things happened on a one-on-one basis, how individually things could exist. Um, So both of those understandings really gave me insight into the entirety of the mental health field and human interaction and how we relate to each other and how we experience belonging or feeling that you don't belong yeah yeah I love that that ability to zoom in and zoom out so let's make sure that we talk about kind of macro level um systems and the impact of policy yeah on individuals as they attempt to access services um let's talk more about your degree so you took courses in psych and soch yep what did you find the most interesting? Ooh. I don't know. The most interesting, I think I took a, I took a sociology class on intersectionality. Oh, and gosh. that was mind-blowing in ways I could never realize. Yeah, right. Um, I never thought I could learn so much about myself by taking a class. Yeah. <laughs> and that threw me. Oh, yeah. Because I think I've always struggled with identity both in not knowing, like, two generations of the male side of my family. Mm-hmm. And then um, both having, like, a complicated racial nationality identity because the only part of my family that I do know immigrated and... Um, just had a very interesting relationship with that. So understanding that on a deeper level was insane. Um, Yeah. And then I also took a course on the psychology of trauma. Um, And it was just after I had experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it helped me understand myself a little bit more and just gave me such a a perspective that I didn't know I needed. Yeah. Um, okay, so for everybody listening, Brianna's going to explain to you what intersectionality or intersecting identities mean, just in case that's a foreign concept for somebody. Yeah, so we as people are not just one category. We can't be one checkbox, one type of dimension, but we're this complex person. So there are several sections of your identity, and to refer to all of them could be to say that you have an intersectional identity, which is that you could be a part of one racial category and a socioeconomic status. You could belong to a certain um, geographic location or identity. You could relate by sexuality, gender identity. There are so many lenses that you could look at, and I haven't even begun to list all of them the ones that exist. Yeah. Um, that's, that's in an essence what it means. Yeah. 
It's so interesting because especially right now with everything in the media, it's like we talk mostly about race, right? Right. Which is an important thing because we want everybody, regardless of any racial background, to have the same access to resources and services and equitable, right, equal access. Um, But I think oftentimes we forget about all of the other identities that we own because they can't be seen, right? So I'm a queer woman, but if you looked at me, you wouldn't be like, oh, Sarah's queer. You would just look at me as a white woman walking about the community, and then that part of my identity would be ignored or um, even, like, called out as the wrong orientation because you can't see it about me. Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting stuff. I wish I would have taken a course specifically on intersectionality that's awesome and then a class on trauma I mean everybody can use that right we all experience trauma yeah and I think that that gave me the biggest insight into what I what I did and what we're going to talk about really which was my work in crisis work Um, that fueled my desire to continue working with a community experiencing trauma yeah in the moment because I I grew such an understanding of it and such an understanding of my own trauma and um, I I think it gave me a lens to look at the world through pain and how pain can shape us but also be a growth point. Totally. Um, So that was really valuable. Yeah. Gosh, we were just talking about that, how often our most deep struggles become the areas that we do the most good in the world, right? Like yeah. the most painful experience is often what prompts us to want to make a difference or a change. And that's, I mean, ultimately what project is, right? Like right. we created this because six months ago, one of my uncles committed suicide, like, and we decided no more. Yeah. So, okay. So awesome. So college fun. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's talk about your crisis work. So I'm really interested because the crisis work I've done was in person, but you worked for a crisis line in Oregon and actually you've done crisis work far longer than I have. So I can't wait to kind of hear about all of it, but what prompted you to go work for a crisis line specifically? You know, I don't think I knew in its fullest extent, what I was getting into when I signed up. And that was probably best, because I don't know if at that point in my life I would have had the courage to take on that mantle and that mission. But I knew I was helping a community that was struggling. And after all of the experiences that I had at that point in in my life, I decided that it was important for me to help where it was the most important. And what I did was work at a suicide crisis line. So that is a life and death consistent vital moment in someone's life that you're there for. Um, so it was really important that I could bear witness to that. And I had experienced multiple losses to suicide. Um, and also had, uh, an instance in college where I had to stop somebody from attempting, which was traumatic. Um, so all of that kind of brought me to that community, but yeah. yeah. So what kind of positions did you hold? Right. Cause I think I know that you had at least two positions at the crisis line. 
Yeah, I kind of I kind of wore many hats, and that's pretty typical of a nonprofit okay. is that you're gonna work in multiple areas. You're gonna strain yourself to do whatever you can. Yeah. Uh, my primary position was to work for a military focused team. Okay. Wow. So uh, specifically working with veterans and their families who are experiencing crisis. Um, but I also worked at an organization which had a youth-specific line, um, an alcohol and drug-specific line. There was a ton of options for me to engage with a wide variety yeah. of people. Um, then, as I was working there and gaining experience, I moved up into an assistant supervisor position um, and did some quality assurance work did some work with complex callers, which we can talk about a little bit, what that means. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, sort of took on a more administrative role in offering coaching to people who were actively on calls or support or helping out however I could mm -hmm. in that capacity. Yeah. Okay, so some micro and some meso level yeah. work. That's interesting. I've never worked in a nonprofit, right? So my entire professional career has been in the public sector as a state employee I don't know what it's like to work for a small agency like I know what it's like to work for an agency that has hundreds of employees and 40,000 clients yeah. <laughs> yeah I know what it's like to work for an agency where there are 14 people answering the entire nation's calls for three hours yeah I can't even so. imagine <laughs> okay so you talked about the different kind of groups of people that would call in yeah um on those phone calls like what kind of support are you able to provide someone in a brief intermittent but high stakes phone call yeah so part of it kind of depends on the space the person comes into the call in so if, if somebody is actively having thoughts of suicide or actively intending to complete suicide, um, then obviously our mission narrows. We're really going to focus on what do we need to do to keep you safe today. Yeah, right. We're not even focused on what tomorrow looks like. Because right. if you make it to tomorrow, you can call back tomorrow and get a different kind of help. But today is mission critical. Today is we want you to stay alive. Um, so that's that's one type of call and other types of calls look different. I mean There are people who would call to just say hello uh, There there are older men and women uh, or, or individuals that don't identify within a binary that would call and just want to talk to another person for a while yeah. just experiencing loneliness um, there were misdials where people have it on their speed dial and would call and then get flustered because they didn't mean to call. There oh. of course, pranks. Um, unfortunately, there's a certain population that gains some sort of sexual component from yeah. calling. Um, so that's, that's, hard. that's a real population that exists. Um, but really, any, anything that you could think of calling for support on probably heard it yeah and so you obviously just said 14 people all of the nation's calls three hours yeah you can't take all those calls no no you can so talk to us about the referral process yeah so a lot of it looks like people on hold yeah until somebody answers and that is horrifying uh if you think of somebody being in a space where they are 
brave enough to reach out for help. Right, they want it And now. just listening to some sort of tune yeah. <laughs> as they wait for somebody to answer. Um, but it becomes a triage at that point. I, I equate it to like working in an emergency department yeah. where you're thinking, okay, how can we get this person safe, do that effectively, and also do it promptly so that we can be available for a person who might be in more need. And so you have to really quickly evaluate those things. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about thinking on your toes, right? Yeah. So some of the other agencies that you would refer out to, I know that you've talked about referring out to like a warm line. Yeah. Talk to us about what that looks like or um, any other community-based supports or services that you would send people to. Yeah. So oftentimes um, different states have county-based crisis lines so you can always search for those and find those pretty easily and those are not run by say the lifeline network that Mm -hmm. we all know the 1-800-273-TALK but they're they have separate numbers they're often 24 hours so you can refer them there if a person isn't in suicidal crisis but might be looking for other kinds of resources or other kinds of support or maybe just needs to talk about their day yeah you can refer to a warm line, and that's what they're designed for. They're designed to be spaces for people to just call and get that human connection. Yeah. That sounds fun. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. would love the experience to work at a warm line. I know. Like, can <laughs> I do some part-time or some just volunteer work? Like, Oh, we, I'm sure. We should do that. Yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. Okay, cool. Wow. Big job you held. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. You guess. It, it's, it's weird. It it felt so normal. Yeah. And it it's so odd how quickly your your meter for normal changes. Yeah. You know, I could be talking to somebody who is actively engaging in an attempt and working with them and helping them get to a place of safety and then get off the phone and look at a meme that my coworker wants to show me. Totally. And it just it just becomes a part of your normal. Yeah. Yeah, it's so weird how, I mean, like, people don't understand this. I know that you can. I'll go out into the community to a grocery store and just be like, please, not today will I see or witness, like, a parent assaulting a child or, like, screaming at a child or doing something because I'm a mandated reporter and I have to call or, like... Someone the other day, I was, like, getting my eyelashes done of all things, and the gal was saying, what's the worst thing that you've ever witnessed or been witness to as a social worker? And I just thought to myself, I cannot tell this poor, like, esthetician about the worst thing I've ever seen or supported somebody through because we would have to debrief, and I don't want (laughs) to counsel her right now. So, yeah. Okay, so... Obviously, the stress of that work is high, right? Tell me about the agency. What kind of support did you guys get as staff to take care of yourselves? What was the health of the agency like? Yeah, so I will say um, as an agency, I think their cornerstone was being responsive to needs. So whatever you needed, you got. Awesome. And whatever capacity they could provide, they would help. Yeah. Um, we had really generous uh, PTO. So we had, I think, four weeks a year, yeah. which is pretty pretty good to start off with. And that's an entry-level position. You would have four weeks that you begin accru- accruing and able to use right when you start. Oh, wow. 
So uh, that's incredible. Yeah, that is. And also they have a really flexible policy on if you took unpaid time off. So mm-hmm. say you burned through that and still needed more time, they were there to help. Awesome. Um, and they had a really robust EAP program, cool. so employee assistance. Yeah. Um, that was incredible. And I, I highly recommend for anyone that's never used that service or any type of service like that to use it yeah. to call. Um, but I yeah. would say that that was their biggest benefit is that they were very responsive to your needs. That, yeah, that makes me feel so good to hear that. Yeah. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, EAP, Employee Assistance Program, like Brianna mentioned, is um, a program that employee employers will often um, provide, most often, for free. Um, and it's not intended to be a long-term service, but rather a short-term service to provide employees connection to resources or help them navigate any kind of family traumas or work crises that are coming up or just like you know, feeling overloaded in your work, they'll help you get connected to support so that um, you feel better at work. I think probably most mental health or social work related agencies or administrations offer them. Yeah. I'm not sure about other fields exactly. I feel like most commercial size organizations would have them. Yeah. Um, And then most would have some sort of capacity like that as a part of their health plan. Yeah for health insurances. Um, And I know most state insurances have at least like a nursing support line, which Mm -hmm. can connect you to mental health if you need to. Um, So that's really incredible. And those are available typically 24 seven. Yeah. Awesome, thanks. So if anyone's listening and needs that, be sure to look into what kind of support your employer could offer you. Okay, so let's transition on from the crisis line. What are you doing now? You talked about all of the micro level, a little bit of meso level work that you were doing. You're doing more administrative policy work right now. So tell everybody what you're doing now. Yeah, so right now I work in an administrative position for a mental health agency running uh, mental health training for staff. So uh, we do like wellness training, some human resources related trainings, safety trainings, things like that. We're working on in our agency a big crisis de-escalation training, um, which is going to be incredible as an asset for us. Um, But really what I work in is designing, okay, what do our clinicians need to be successful? Mm -hmm. What do they need to be able to be there for whatever their client might need? Um, So that's a big part of my job now. Um, I'm looking to go into social work as an education. and so I'm, I'm sort of transitioning out of that for this new experience, but that's where I am. <laughs> I am just so excited, just so you know, that you're going to get a Master of Social Work degree. I think it's so cool. I'm, I'm really excited, and I'm still waiting to hear back from Rutgers, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Except Here Brianna. <laughs> Here I am, please, and thank you. Um, <laughs> Yeah. That's cool. Um, so what do you want to do with your MSW? Tell us about that. I want to go back into crisis work. Yeah. I, I really do. I, I miss the impact that I felt that I could have. And not really impact like, oh, I get to save people. Because that's not true. No, and that is in true. no way what I did. Yeah, it's them saving them. Yeah. But it's such an incredible thing to bear witness to. Yeah. There is 
no way to describe meeting somebody when they're in such a vulnerable spot and then seeing the amount of sheer strength that it takes to say I'm gonna be okay tonight yeah and being able to be a part of that being able to witness that engage with that support somebody help somebody see things in a new way is just magical yeah yeah crisis work is addicting I mean you kind of get stuck in that like yeah energy and you don't you don't want to get out of it yeah I think the thing that's as a professional a bummer about it is that you're only with people for this tiny like intimate moment in their Mm -hmm. lives and then you send them out into the world hoping that they find recovery and you don't always know if they did you never know there there are some calls that I you know left the call and was like oh okay Good well, luck. You know, here we are. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we're off the phone now. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a part of life. Yeah. But I like the part that it's finite. I think as a person, I would invest too much yeah. if I stayed with them longer. Yeah. Um, so part of that is, is helpful. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Right. There's a kind of safeguarding there that takes the yeah. place. When I was a case manager, I had my case hold for five years and it was like, I know, I know these people. Yeah. I've known them through good and bad. I've known them for five birthdays. I've known them as they've gone into the hospital, transitioned out of mom and dad's into their own housing. Like I've, You just start to know people so well that it's really easy as supporting professionals to like forget that they're still someone that you're supporting. They're not your friends. Yeah. You know, you can love people, but you have to love them from afar. You can't be invested in their successes or their failures to a point where they become your own. And yeah. it's just dangerous. We have to boundary set. Yeah. And I think the the similarity that I draw to that from my work is working with complex callers. And I think I mentioned that a little earlier. So for, for people listening, what that really means is just in layman's terms, people who call often mm-hmm. and you know, maybe in a position where they're in a stagnant mental health crisis, mm-hmm. where they're experiencing consistent trauma, consistent pain, and need a, a type of consistent support, and so they seek that through a crisis line. Um, so wait, what is often? Ooh, so that could vary. Yeah. Um, I saw somebody rack up, I think, over 300 calls oh. in a week. Holy smokes. Um, so I can only imagine I, what that person was going through. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about it in numbers and you say things like rack up. But that's, it's because... You normalize you, it. Yeah, you become involved in that. Yeah. And I, I specifically worked in creating uh, clinical rationale for handling those calls and making sure we could properly support them within our boundaries as a crisis line. Yeah. Because if we, if we confirm safety with somebody they hang up and they call us right back. You know, what happened? We just confirmed safety. Where, where are we now? Yeah. Um, so there, there are different tactics that you have to use from a clinical lens to handle a call like that. Yeah. But for those individuals, you do get to know them because they call so often. Mm-hmm. And, and they have such immense stories. And oftentimes, people who are able to and willing to call more often will share their story more often. Yeah. And they'll talk about different things. So, you know, I I can relate to getting to know people from Mm -hmm. that perspective. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, 300 phone calls with someone, I can only imagine. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're just going to talk about your crisis work because it's so incredible. <laughs> so we're okay. staying on this topic. Tell me about... Tell me about the anatomy of a phone call. Walk me through this because the way that I did crisis work was I, we triaged it. I triaged it, but I did it in person. So yeah. there was never like, I don't want to say a script. Like I don't imagine that phone calls in crisis are scripted, but I just never knew physically what I was walking into. So tell right. me about the anatomy of a call. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same the same aspect you don't know what you're walking into yeah but you're limited in so many ways because you can't see what's happening you can't see the emotion on someone's face right you can't see what is in their immediate vicinity which might cause harm yeah you that's to me this is just so hard yeah yeah i mean it's definitely a challenge and you have to listen yeah so that's really how it begins and the only scripted thing that I would say that exists is most people ask some variation of the question, how can I help? Yeah. Um, and that, that begins the call. And what you have to be ready for is to answer to whatever they say. Yeah. And sometimes it's a string of swear words. Sometimes it's just crying for a few minutes. Yeah. Sometimes it's silence and then somebody hangs up yeah. sometimes people are jumping into a story in media res you don't know what the story is about but you know that they're saying something that's important yeah so that that's kind of the beginning is you just jump in feet first yeah. into whatever is happening for that person Okay, so I want to highlight this because those four questions are so simple. It's like, how can I help? We say that every day, right? Like, right. how can I help? Can I help you do the dishes? Can I pick up your dry cleaning? Like, whatever the deal is. But for anybody listening, those question, that those four words that make up that question in that moment where someone is like, I don't know if I can go on, it does so much more than saying, I'm here to help you. It says, I value your life. I love you. I want you to be okay. Yeah. Right? So tell me about the significance of when you asked somebody that question. What, what was it like for them, do you think? I think prob and I, wow, I didn't think I would talk about this. Um, probably the most moving and powerful response that I ever heard from that is somebody who asked, do you want to? back mm. holy crap and um, do you even care yeah. yeah do do you want to and what I found out later was that this person was a child mm. um that would not even qualify as like a youth or a teenager mm -hmm. um, and they were suicidal how old were they do you know uh they were 11 oh my gosh. and so that moment that vulnerability that they were able to show yeah is something, and I think children have this special lens mm -hmm. where they're just honest. I love kids. So I think that for me, that really taught that the way that you convey that question has to have meaning. Yeah. You can't be tired in that moment. You can't be frustrated with how your day is going. You can't be thinking about lunch. Right. You have to be invested because they're going to question that. 
immediately. Yeah. And I would question that immediately. If I was in such a vulnerable spot, I would be like, what do you mean? Yeah, and it's so hard too because, I mean, I would be lying if I told you that I brought my whole self to work every day. Yeah. It's just not possible. I mean, even in my case management, even in my clinical work, like, I would be lying if I said that when I was doing therapy with people, I was 100% present, right? Like, it's just really hard to do that. So how do you keep showing up every day and give that question meaning? The end of the call. Yeah. Um, I really think it goes to, and we're, we're skipping ahead in the anatomy piece, but to hear somebody laugh after an hour of crying, yeah, that is more beautiful than any song I've ever heard. That is incredible. Yeah. So that's what keeps me going is that we could get there the next day. The next call could be that for somebody. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's really what was important for me. And there were times where I took maybe two calls in a day because I needed a gap. Yeah. And I needed to process what had happened. So it, each day looks different in how you get to the next call that you're going to take, but you have to be ready and whatever that space looks like, you got to be willing to take it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So how can I help is the first question. Yeah. Take us through the rest of it. What does this look like? Yeah. So Oftentimes, um, and I think we blog posted about this as well, but we talk about the 80-20 rule. Yeah. So you want to be talking really only 20% of the time. You want to let the person that you're communicating with have 80% of that conversation. So the first bit looks a lot more like 100-0. You just listen. You're listening to whatever they have to say. They tell you their story how they got to wherever they are that brought them to call. And so a lot of it is just embracing, understanding, being willing to not make opinions about what someone's saying. Yeah, right. Because somebody might rant through something and say 10 things you disagree with, and you can't listen to those yeah. in, in a way that you're going to respond or yeah. react. You have to be able to just fully accept what they're saying. And so that's a lot of it. And then you get to a point, and it's typically fairly early in listening, where you're ready to assess asking the question. And that's just saying, are you thinking about suicide? And you want to be direct like that. You want to ask, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? Are you thinking about taking or ending your life? It has to be that blunt. Yeah. Because there is such a spectrum of people that call. There are people that would call in a crisis because they're thinking of, say, self-harm. Right. So if you would ask that person, are you thinking of hurting yourself? They might say yes. But if you ask that person, are you thinking of killing yourself? They would say, oh, no, no way. But they might want to do some type of harm. So you have to be clear. And because you really only have your voice, you have to use that directly. Yeah. So that's, that's really the next part is asking and assessing, do you want to die? How do you want to die if you do? Do you have whatever plan with you? What does that look like? How can we separate that from you? Right. 
And so that, that delves into risk assessment, which is really the triaging aspect. So saying, okay, what, where, when, how, mm -hmm. and, and identifying all of those pieces. Yeah. And then you start to safety plan. Yeah. Tell me about how you can do that over the phone, because for me, safety planning in person was pretty easy. Mm. I mean, it wasn't easy, but I think about safety planning in person was easier than it must have been on the phone because you just don't know if the person is by themselves. You don't know if they yeah. are lying to you about, you know, not having supporters or not having a potential items to harm themselves. You just don't know. Yeah. Um, and you really become a little bit of a detective in that aspect. So you're listening to, do I hear something in the background? Are they holding something? Can I hear that? Mm -hmm. um, if, say, somebody is holding something that might make a sound when they move it, can I hear that when they say that they're moving it? And you, you learn to be in tune to people's reactions. And I would say 99% of the time, people will be 100% honest. Yeah. Because you're kind of talking to just a voice on the phone. You can say whatever you want. You could hang up at any time. You, you can say whatever and that person's going to listen. Yeah. So people, by and large, are really honest. Yeah. But there have been, and, and I remember instances, especially in talking to children or youth, um, where they might not be ready to move something or safety plan but they say that they're willing just to kind of be a little bit pleasing to yeah. whoever they're talking to sounds like something a child would do yeah. <laughs> so uh you just ask again you say okay well we talked about doing this did that happen yeah tell me tell me where it is now tell me where you are now yeah um things like that but you you really just have to learn to Except that people are calling and sharing this much. So why, why at this point, when you've built up some sort of rapport, would they lie now? Yeah. And, and you got you to gotta hold to that. Right. Okay, so tell us about confirming safety. I love that statement, by the way. I, I never used that. Nobody ever used that language with me, confirming safety. So tell us about that. Yeah, so we... We often ask in blunt ways, just like we ask about suicide, you know, are you going to be alive today? Are you committed to that? Do you think you can make it through the rest of today? Or do you think you can make it through whatever time period we set? And if not, are you going to call back? Yeah. Are we going to start over? Because we're ready to start over. Yeah. And, and you confirm that with them and, and decide what that's going to look like. Okay, what is the rest of their day going to be? Because now you're going to be alive for it. Right. What, what's going to happen? Which is the exciting part. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are so many opportunities, and it looks different for every person. Um, some people are people that are going to take a nap after because what they've yep. been through is emotionally exhausting. Yeah, that's me, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some people are going to go out because they don't want to be in whatever space they're in currently. Yep. Some people are going to immediately reach out to a friend. Mm -hmm. Some people are going to transfer that friend into the call. Some people are going to watch TV, go outside. I mean, there are a thousand ways that somebody could decide to stay safe. Yeah. Um, and you really develop that based off of whoever you're talking to. 
and whatever their access to activities might be. Yeah. Um, some people that I spoke to um, were disabled and unable to move outside of their environment. Mm-hmm. And so really their safety plan was, well, I'm still here, so I'm just going to be here and lay here and maybe turn on the TV that I have or... You know, it can be whatever small thing they're able to do to yeah. engage in life in some way. Right. And then you have to take care of you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which is the part that we so often forget about. Yeah. 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 I mean, it it looks different after every call. After every time you hang up, you, you need something different. Yeah. Um, there were some times that I would just look over to a coworker, maybe after like two and a half hours on the phone with somebody and just be like, what just happened? Right. What did I just talk to this person about? Yeah. Um, other times you immediately go into, we have a quiet room. So you immediately walk in there and you just sit or you grab someone else and you take them somewhere. Yeah. Um, it just depends. It's important work. This is very big work going on. Yeah. I think probably the worst experience that I ever had, um, and I'll identify this as my own bias and my own kind of limits in compassion, because I think we all have that. Yeah. But I very strongly um, am biased against people who have hurt children Mm -hmm. in the past. And so I, I once spoke to somebody who admitted to on the phone and talked about, unfortunately, in quite some detail about how they had hurt a child. Yeah. And after that call, um, I remember the look on my friends' faces when, when they saw me get off that phone. Yeah. And I was muting myself on the phone so that I could cry. It was a rough experience. Yeah. Um, that really tested my humanity, mm-hmm. and my compassion, and my empathy, and in, in ways that I think were good for me. Totally. But after that call, I needed space. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because I too have had to work really closely with some individuals that have done terrible things, right? Who, who are still on kind of their probation with the state of Oregon and, and, um, you know, whatever else. And I remember just thinking, okay, this is a person, these are people that I am not choosing to work with, right? I'm working with them because it's my job. So it's my job and my job is to be present, Mm -hmm. to try to bring, you know, the very best access to resources and services that I can, and to mm-hmm. believe that everybody is capable of recovery. Yeah. But people who aren't in the field don't understand that, like, how could you sit with somebody that's done terrible things? And I often have to go to people that do terrible things sometimes have had terrible things done to them. And, yeah. you know, people who have done terrible things don't have to be terrible people. They could recover. Yeah. or rehabilitate or or just maybe not but never do it again right I mean yeah, right. and those things test every part your gut your head you feel like you can't like sit still I mean like that's just 
yeah, I sympathize with you on that one. Yeah, I remember one quote, and I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head where I heard it, but it's something that I thought on a lot after that conversation and that phone call and throughout my, my experience in working in the mental health field. And this is in no way to signify any sort of religious background or feelings. Yeah. But the quote is, who among us would have the compassion to feel for the devil? So who could look at somebody who is defined as like the epitome of evil and feel compassion for them? Right. And I think about that a lot because I don't know if I'm always that strong. Yeah. But you kind of have to be. You, you do. Have to, you have to force yourself to be in a way. And, right, if you can't, then you have the responsibility of saying, I can't, and you yeah. have to create space. So, like, if I had been your supervisor on that call when you're having to mute yourself and, like, cry, I would have said, you know, Brianna, like, I love you and respect you enough to not make you do this right yeah. now. Like, because yeah. that person maybe would benefit from talking to somebody who could be more objective or more present. or And that's nothing bad there's nothing wrong with that yeah and I think the hard part in working for a crisis line is there was no no yes and that comes back to a lot of systemic things of understaffing and things like that but you know it was me and I did feel that responsibility and that that situation ended up being a a high acuity situation so it was one that needed immediate need Um, so we were able to divert and have a productive conversation but um, definitely is a challenge yeah you know, and I, I, what's weird is I don't think I started the crying and muting until we were, he, that person was safe. Yeah. Un, until we had identified safety, right. they were going to be okay. They were going throughout their day. We you were talking about it. what that looked like. And then I was like, ha, ah, yeah. I know that this call is ending. <laughs> I'm going to have to experience these feelings. Yeah. Ugh. That's the hard part of being a social worker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So... I'm glad that person was okay. So you mentioned some systems level work. So we've talked to micro, we've talked to meso. Let's talk macro. Yeah. Tell me about, and then we'll go to the end of the podcast questions because I don't want to keep everybody forever. But tell me about the changes that need to occur in the system based off of what you've seen. Oh gosh, there's so much that needs to happen. I mean, the first thing I would say is funding money number one and of course isn't it always money that it comes down to isn't that just always the way but money is what we need the lifeline is so comically underfunded I think it gets something like each lifeline center gets a thousand dollars yeah I think it was like twelve hundred or something in your blog post it's absolutely ridiculous that is nowhere near enough right to hire trained staff to be there to support the volunteer base, which is quite robust. I mean, I don't think people always realize this, but the Lifeline is able to take as many calls as it does because volunteers are a major part of that organization. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that until the blog post that you wrote about that. Yeah, uh, so they're they're a huge part, but you weren't aware of it, and you've worked in Mm -hmm. the field for a really long time. Yep. I wasn't aware of it until I found the job and then realized you could have also volunteered for it. Right. There, there's so much that we're just not aware of because we don't talk about it. Yeah. You know, when you hear about suicide in the media, it's often this, oh, isn't it terrible that this person passed away? 
Right. Oh, that's so sad. Right. And that's the end of the conversation. And it ends up, because suicide is the tenth leading cause of death, being a very shallow conversation. Right. Yeah, it fails to acknowledge that perhaps there were services and resources and systems that failed yeah. the people along the way. And even if they mention, you know, calling for support to the lifeline, wouldn't it be so powerful if they ended that message with saying, if you want to get involved in supporting people in crisis, you can do that here. Here's yeah. our local affiliate. Yeah. So we need better funding because yeah. we need to hire more staff, which... Side note, I mean, I have really considered doing some of this work, but I'm going to be honest, like, I couldn't afford my home yeah. if I was a clinician at some of these centers. I have a lot of student debt. I, you know, like, it's just not fair. Yeah, you're not, you're not really paid a living wage yeah. as, as an adult person, and you certainly wouldn't be for an adult person with a family. Right. So more funding, more staff, more volunteers and more media support, more, more knowledge. Yeah, I think, I think it just comes back to being willing to talk about it, being willing to ask the question and talk about the question at the dinner table. Yeah. It is not something that's taboo. Right. And, and that's the frustrating part is that we have to decide that as a culture. Yeah. We have to decide that experiencing depression or experiencing thoughts of suicide or anxiety is normal. Is a symptom. It's a symptom. And it might be a symptom of unwellness, just like the cold is, just like the flu is, right. just like a chronic illness would be. Yeah. You know, if you, if you experience chronic depression, how is that different from experiencing diabetes? Yeah. It's not. Because I guarantee any person experiencing unwellness in some capacity would not want to. Right. And if they could control it, would. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I still, like... My partner, Tori, and I are still like, okay, Sarah, what, what's it going to take for you to take your meds? And I'm like, every time I open that bottle, I have to be reminded of the fact that I'm different and society doesn't let me be different, right? Yeah. So I think you're right. And I hope that by having these podcast episodes, by writing our blogs, by having you know our Instagram and our website, we're just like a tiny piece of the puzzle that starts to normalize this. Yeah. Yeah, and I think kind of what I, I would want to end on is just a message for anybody listening to this and thinking, oh, well, I couldn't do that, or I couldn't experience that. Um, I couldn't be a part of the solution in any way. Like, I I think I'm great. You are. But I'm, I'm no special being yeah. in any capacity. Right. I'm not any different than anyone else that could walk in off the street and want to help. So anyone could be a part of that and and you don't have the responsibility to save anyone's life during one of my low moments at the crisis line where i was upset and frustrated and feeling conflicted about my my work and my longevity in that career my boss took me aside and he said to me it is not your job to save everyone brianna you cannot save anyone and that was so powerful because it, it's not about that. It's not about that for anyone. Okay. All you're doing is being human with another person. Right. And letting them do the work. Yeah. And, and anyone can do that. Yeah. Yeah, they can. And actually that blog post that you wrote that we just took live recently is a super helpful um, 
super helpful kind of uh, support for non-clinical or family members or people who just don't have the same background that we have and how to have those conversations. So for anybody listening, make sure that you... um, Make sure that you go read that. And you can see that at projectstayalive.com forward slash ask. All right. Are you ready for some closing questions? Ooh, I am ready. Okay, let's do it. What is one thing coming up that you are looking forward to, my friend? Um, so this person I know is getting married. <laughs> <laughs> it's you. It is um, me. You had to say it. <laughs> I, I cannot tell you how honored I am to be a part of that, to be a part of your life and to think that I get to share in that moment with you and and witness that. I am really, You're going to make me cry. Stop it. (laughs) No, that is, um, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm getting married in 15 days and it's coming up quick and I am so excited that Brianna is going to be one of my bridesmaids. She has this beautiful long pink dress that like if I was going to be somebody's <laughs> bridesmaid, I would wear the dress that she chose, which is just so fun. So, um, yeah, we can't wait to have you. It's going to be great. Yeah. Okay. What's one thing that you want people to know about mental health? Oh gosh. It's so normal. I, I think when I worked at the Lifeline, I took something like 2,000 calls during my time there. Uh, maybe over. I think it was a little over. And in Wait, all how long did calls, you work at the Lifeline? Uh, two years. Okay. So that's about 1,000 calls a year. I think it worked out to about like six calls a day. Okay. Um, but that would be every day, which I didn't work every day. Right. So um, obviously a lot of calls yeah. come in. Um, but... I can't tell you how normal it is. People call in thinking that they are the only ones who have experienced something. And that's just not true. Yeah. Whatever you're experiencing, you are not alone in that. Somebody else might be experiencing that at the same time as you. Yeah. And that just because you might be experiencing a symptom, maybe a disorder that you know that's identified, you are in no way crazy or abnormal. Yeah. You are a person. And those things exist. Those definitions, those disorders exist because they are real. Those are a part of our life. And so to think that you are anything but human and anything but real and anything but authentically yourself, you know, I'll argue with you on that all day. That's just incorrect. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how anyone's ever going to be able to top that answer. All right, last one. You ready? All right, give us one reason to live today. You know, I I thought about how I would answer this a lot. And um, I think what I come back to is that there are moments that any unwellness or any experience can never rob you of. And I... um, I'm we almost little... made it through the whole yeah. podcast without crying. How did, how did we get here? I don't Such know. a positive note. I don't know. <laughs> um, wow. I remember one moment in particular, and it was a moment I was um, at a hike on the beach, and I was having a mild version of a panic attack. I had just frozen up. I get a sort of fear of heights, and I think that comes from, you know, a lack of feeling control in mm-hmm. a scenario. Totally. Um, 
but I, I was standing there and frozen and I was at the beach at sunset at this beautiful hike and I couldn't see it in that moment. I couldn't see it. And thankfully I had someone there with me who helped me through that moment. And I took a breath and I remember the exact moment that I began to experience that sunset. And that moment is irreplaceable. And no experience before that could ever rob me of that moment. So if you're gonna choose to live today, choose that you have irreplaceable moments that are coming up. I guarantee it. They won't always be positive. They won't always be perfect. And sometimes you're gonna panic before they come. But when they come and when you see that, it's gonna be beautiful. So, yeah, that's why. I can't wait to hear about all of your moments. No. Brianna, <laughs> thank you so much. Everybody is going to be so excited to hear about all of the fabulous work that you've done, all of the fabulous work that you are going to continue to do. And I just feel so blessed and proud to know you and call you a friend. Thank you. Um, I... As I stated before, you know, I am just so excited to be a part of this and to be a part of your life and to share in experiences with you and in this podcast and in everything to come. I guess we don't know what's coming. We'll see. <laughs> life. <laughs> All right. I think that concludes this episode.